We're great, very grateful for all of our children and for those that teach them. Amen? Praise the Lord. If anyone has a desire to be involved in children's ministries, we will find a place for you. There's always openings in that area of ministry, so just let us know. Well, if you have your Bibles with you here today, I'd invite you to open up to Philippians chapter 1. Today will be an introduction to this letter. We will not get into the text very much today, but we will uh, have an introduction, and so we'll have a better understanding of it uh, in a couple of weeks when we continue this series. Let me start with a question. Are you happy? That's actually a loaded question. We live in a generally sad world, a fallen world, acquainted with despair, depression, disappointment, dissatisfaction, and a longing for lasting happiness that often never comes to pass. Moments of pleasure and happiness are scattered through the general pain and sorrow of life. And many have little hope that their situation in life will ever change much, if any, for the better. Happiness, for most, is elusive. This is because happiness is totally based on circumstances that are largely beyond our control. Happiness, therefore, cannot be planned or in any way guaranteed. It is experienced only if and when circumstances are favorable. Therefore, happiness is elusive. It's interesting to note that nowhere in Scripture are we told to pursue happiness. But over 100 times in the New Testament alone, the writers speak of joy. The joy of the Lord. Spiritual joy is not a feeling based on chance or circumstances. Spiritual joy is the deep and lasting confidence That regardless of our circumstances, all is well between the believer and their Lord Jesus Christ. As we sing in that great hymn, it is well with my soul. We sang that hymn the Sunday after the Tubbs fire in our church. We had five families or members of our church who lost their homes in that fire. And one of those individuals, Lisa, asked if we could sing that song. Because that was the anchor for their lives. It is well with my soul. No matter what difficulty, pain, disappointment, failure... Rejection or other challenge we are facing, our joy remains because of the tremendous blessing of God's grace in our salvation. Scripture makes it clear that the fullest, most lasting, and most satisfying joy is found in our relationship 
with Jesus Christ, our fellowship with other believers, and our participation in the gospel work that God has given us to do. Therefore, it is not surprising that joy is an important theme in the New Testament. In fact, the verb rejoice appears 96 times in the New Testament. And the noun joy another 59 times. These two words, joy and rejoice, occur 16 times in the letter to the Philippians. Including Philippians 4.4, 4, where we read, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Therefore, it's not surprising that joy is an important theme in this letter. Today, we will begin an expositional study of Paul's letter to the Philippians and begin to unpack the source of joy for all believers. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I am going to read the first eight verses in Philippians chapter 1 just to set the tone. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, excuse me, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. So today, we will begin to look at this letter. And we'll get into that particular text that we just read in a couple of weeks. But for now, I want to give you an overview of this glorious letter. And I want us to see three things in that overview. First, it is a joy-filled letter, as I alluded to earlier. Any Christian who is feeling down, discouraged, or persecuted should study this letter. This is true because of Paul's circumstances when he wrote it. Paul had been kept under arrest, if you remember, in Caesarea without a trial for over two years. Then, after appealing for a trial before Caesar, he endured a perilous storm and a shipwreck on his way to Rome, where he had again been placed under arrest Chained, chained to Roman guards, awaiting a trial for over two years. He had been deserted by most of his countrymen. Others, even pastors, had spoken out against him. And on top of all of that, 
He was facing possible execution for his faith in Jesus Christ and for his work of the gospel. Yet, no book of the Bible is so filled with joy as the book of Philippians. All the way through this letter, Paul speaks of spiritual joy. Of the spiritual joy that leads to rejoicing. As I said earlier, 16 times in this short letter. The letter only has 104 verses. We see in this letter a follower of Christ who had not only learned to be content in whatever circumstances he found himself in, but to rejoice in the Lord because of those circumstances. That's pretty amazing. Not in spite of the circumstances, but because of the circumstances. What was Paul's secret? How could he remain joyful in such circumstances? We will find out by studying this letter. Yet Philippians is not just for people who are feeling discouraged or even those that are feeling joyful. It is a rich book of theology and doctrine as well. It is a doctrine-filled letter. Now, Philippians is not a doctrinal treatise like Paul's letter to the Romans, but it is filled with great doctrinal truths in summary form. For instance, the main theme of the letter written by Paul to the Romans is that of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that our righteousness is something credited to us by the completed work of Christ as our substitute. In this letter, this entire teaching is summed up in one verse. Philippians 3.9. Let me read that to you. Paul writes, That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, I have no righteousness that comes from the law because no righteousness can come from the law because no one can keep the law. Therefore, we need a righteousness that comes from outside of us. A righteousness that is a gift from God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Powerful message in that single verse. Another example of doctrine encapsulated in a couple of verses is Paul's teaching about the resurrection. How many of you are looking forward to the resurrection? Yeah, all of us, right? We don't need a show of hands. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul devotes an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, to the teaching of the, re- of the resurrection. Here, he summarizes it in two verses. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. He says this, But our citizenship 
is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Wow. Right now, we are blessed with lowly bodies, aren't we? Some of us are getting more and more lowly, right? As we grow older. But one day, we will exchange this mortal body, this sin-infected body, we will exchange that for a glorified body like that of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that is a powerful truth, isn't it? I look forward to that day. Philippians is a beloved letter with concise teaching on important topics for our Christian life. There are many verses in this short letter that are very familiar to us and are often quoted. Let me remind you of just a few of these. Philippians 1.6 he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We just heard a little bit about that a couple of Sundays ago. That God is going to glorify his people. Each one of us that he has begun a good work in. Granting us salvation in his son. He will complete that work. He will never let go of us. Nothing can take us out of his hand. He will hold us fast. It's another good song. Until the day that Jesus returns or the day that we go to be with him. Philippians 1.21. Paul writes, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't know about you, but that's a powerful promise. Paul was facing the possibility of execution, of death. And guess what? Every one of us face the possibility, the certainty of death. The odds of us dying are one in one. Okay? Unless Jesus returns first, and then we're going to die to the flesh, right? But to die is gain, Paul says. In fact, he goes on to say, I'm not sure which I prefer, right? To stay with you or to go be with him? Actually, he says, I'd rather be with him. But if my work's not done, I think I'll probably remain. Philippians 4.4, 4, I quoted earlier. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The truth that we can rejoice no matter what. And then Philippians 4.13. How many times have you heard this quoted? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Is that not a powerful promise? Now that doesn't mean all things as in, you know, I can go lift a, a railway car. That means all things that God 
requires of me, all things that God desires of me, all things that God would have me do according to his will, I can do those things, not in myself, but through him who strengthens me. And then Philippians 4.19, another beautiful promise, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. These and many other passages are so familiar to us and it will be my joy to unpack them for you over the next few months as we study this letter together. It is a joy-filled letter. It is a doctrine-filled letter. But most important of all, it is a Christ-filled letter. This brings us to the beginning of the answer as to why and how Paul could be so joyful in the midst of his circumstances. Paul's secret was to fill his mind with Christ. And that is clearly seen throughout this letter. Now, I'm no neurosurgeon, obviously. I'm no expert in the mind, but I have read and been told that the human mind cannot think of two things at once. And I'll tell you something, I've experienced that to be true. Okay? If you're trying to do something and all of a sudden you get a random thought, what happens? Yeah. Yeah, you forget the first thing, right? Your concentration is broken, right? You're interrupted. And so the principle there would be if your mind is centered on Christ and you're full of him, he is going to be the one who directs your thoughts. Did you know that the name of Christ or Jesus Christ occurs 17 times in the first chapter of this letter alone? And over 40 times in the 104 verses of this letter. And that's not counting the personal pronoun references to Jesus. The he and himself and his. Nor the title Lord. So this is a Christ-filled letter. In this letter, Paul longed to know Christ. And for others to know him as well. And when we say To know Christ, we're not talking about simple head knowledge. We're not talking about knowing about Christ or knowing that Christ was a historical figure. I've shared my testimony many times that I grew up in a home where we all professed to be Christians because everyone was a Christian, at least as far as I knew. Oh, I knew there were some strange people in other countries, you know, that had other strange religions. But in America, we were all Christians. This was a Christian nation, right? Founded on Christian principles. And so if you'd asked me at 12 years old if I believed in Jesus, I would have said, absolutely, of course. What do you mean? He's the son of God. We celebrate Christmas because he was born of the Virgin Mary in a manger in Bethlehem. 
He lived a sinless life. We celebrate Easter because he died on the cross and he rose again Easter Sunday. I believed all of that. I believed he was a historical figure. I had no reason not to believe it. But I didn't know him. I didn't know him as my Savior and Lord. I knew about him. Paul longed to know Jesus experientially, intimately, and for others to know him as well. I long for that. To grow in my knowledge of Christ. And I long for that for you as well. Paul will tell us in this letter that he had achieved many things in his life as a human being. He was a Pharisee. He had been a rabbi. He had lived as blameless under the Jewish law. But he goes on to tell us that he counts all those things as loss, as garbage, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, Philippians 3.8. Nothing could compare to knowing intimately, personally, Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And this is what each and every one of us need. Amen? This is what really matters in this life. And this is what really mattered to Paul. He would give up everything else, including his freedom, to know and to serve Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And this is a major factor in the joy that Paul experienced. The joy of knowing Christ and what Christ had done in order to save Paul and all of us who put our faith in him. Paul, through the Spirit of God, was given insight into what was the motivation in the mind of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Paul was given insight into why the Son of God did what he did to save us. And he shares that in this letter as well. In chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Adam read that earlier in the service. You can turn there if you would like to and follow along as I read a section of the teaching there regarding Christ Jesus. And this is a teaching that is found nowhere else in Scripture. But here, Philippians 2, starting in verse 3, we read these words. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now he's going to tell us what the mind of Christ Jesus was in what he did. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I look forward to unpacking this passage in the months to come. We had a preview yesterday in our men's breakfast where we focused on this very passage. And I didn't plan that. That's just the way God planned it. But let me just hit some highlights here of this Christ-filled letter. Paul tells us here that the second person of the Trinity who became Jesus existed in the form of God. In other words, he was God prior to the incarnation. But he did not hold on to or grasp being God and refuse to become a human being. Instead, he humbled himself and was poured into a human being, taken on human body so that he could live the life we could not live, a perfect life of perfect obedience to the Father, a righteous life, a life that none of us can live. Scripture is pretty clear about that. There are none righteous, no, not one. Except Jesus. And he earned the righteousness then that we are credited with when we repent and trust in him for our salvation. He took on the form of a servant, born in the image or likeness of men, found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He died on that cross not because he deserved to die, for he did not. He was sinless. He died on that cross taking my sin. And your sin if you have trusted in him for your salvation. And paying the penalty for those sins in full. And that is why God therefore highly exalted him. We just sang that earlier, didn't we? He is seated on his throne. Come let us adore him. And so the Son of God, who is himself God, set the example for us of humility, of serving others, and of obedience to the Father. This was the pattern that Paul himself endeavored to follow and desired to see in the church in Philippi. And it is the same pattern that God wants to see in our lives, in our church today. That we would be willing to sacrifice ourselves in serving others, in obedience to God the Father. Remember, this letter was not written to us, but it was written for us. And we are to heed and follow the teaching that we will learn through this letter. You and I need to fill our minds with Jesus. We need to know Him 
We need to follow him. We need to continue in the work of the gospel that he has called us to. And as we do this, I believe that we too will experience the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Amen? We will experience the same joy that Paul did. And that joy is contagious, isn't it? So our study through this letter will cause us to know Christ better, will help us to understand doctrine better, and will help us to experience more joy in our lives as we partner together in gospel ministry. Our God is faithful, and He will bring it to pass. Amen? Let me close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for this opportunity for an just a brief introduction into this marvelous letter that your servant, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church in Philippi. It was written to them, but Father, we know that through your Holy Spirit, it was written for us as well. And I pray, Father God, that you would bless our time over the next few weeks and months as we unpack the truths in this letter. I pray, Father God, that we would come to know you through your Son in a deeper, richer way. And that we would experience the joy of the Lord as our strength. And that we would indeed partner together in the sake of the gospel, the gospel ministry that you have given to us. Thank you, Father God. Thank you for this opportunity. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said earlier this morning, we have...